I was a banker, Paul, and I was a commercial banker, then I was an investment banker, and then I was in venture capital and private equity, and then I ran a New York Stock Exchange company. And I'm kind of in the, and then I departed that world in 2010, and I've been messing around with other stuff since then. And I'm not all that current with what's been happening in the crypto world. Um, and, uh, but it seems like we've got this situation where old finance, banks, and so on and so forth has become completely ossified, almost a public utility. You know, post Dodd-Frank, post all these banking regulations, you can't start a new bank. There's going to be no new entrance. And so anything new that's going to happen is going to have to come out of the fin FinCEN world or FinTech world or something like that. And that's the, that's the uncharted territory. And it'd be interesting to sort of pose a big problem, which is how do we have access, you know, how can we keep access to banking um, services? One way to go at it is to get regulatory relief or regime change. The other way to do it is to invent new stuff. And the third way, so, yeah, so I think the way I think of it, we frame up the question, right, Then we th and then we basically, or the problem, right, and we try to basically convince people this is a problem that we shouldn't just dismiss and just say, oh, it's no big deal, or the, you know, and then basically then we take it in the direction of what are the solutions, right? So, yeah. so Paul offers one suite of solutions, they're saying innovation, but the way I think about this is along the lines you were just describing, which is I think of it in terms of the intersection with the what what makes the traditional conservative view open to question on this is this this or not in the world of the first best right this isn't just like start your own bank uh we're talking about here the entanglement this is the apotheosis of the entanglement of the regulatory state because of the opaque way in which financial services are done the uh, um the woke corporate culture right um, and uh, um, these barriers to entry, right? And so basically, and what basically what you have then is, you can't just start a new bank to start providing this, right? And so that, and so this is, leads me to a Brian Brooks type thing. What, what, to preserve liberty, should we be thinking in terms of, of, you know, affirmative actions by government? So okay, ready, set, go. I'm ready, set, go. All right, this is the Bill Walton Show, May five, Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Have you ever thought about what your life may be like if you were denied access to a bank account or a credit card or access to, access to any kind of digital payment system? Well, it's happening, and it's happening to an increasing number of people and organizations. Cancel culture has come to banking. PayPal, major credit card networks, and banks have already stopped processing payments for organizations they deem hate groups. And cryptocurrencies, which I thought might be a safe haven, well, maybe not so much. Um, Bitcoin was supposed to be a financial lifeline for the truckers in Canada, but instead, Canadian authorities ordered banks and crypto exchanges to block transactions from crypto wallets tied from the truck the truckers. Seems like everything 
has now become political, including our digital money. There's a lot to dig in here, and it's a vast topic, but fortunately today I'm joined by two real subject matter experts. Uh, Todd Zawicki, it's great to have you back. Todd's been here several times. Uh, Todd, who served, he served as chair of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Task Force on Consumer uh, Financial Law. He's also a very major professor at George Mason Scalia Law School, and I, his resume goes on for four pages, so I'm going to stop there. We'll, we'll allude to some of it during the show. And I'm really happy to have Paul Watkins join us, who's with Potomac Partners and um, Fusion Law Firm. Uh, he, he founded the Office of Innovation at the Consumer, Pro, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and served on the Digital Financial Stability Oversight Committee Subcommittee on Digital Assets. Uh, he's also run civil enforcement for a state attorney general. Paul, good, glad you're here. Thank you. Um, Todd, why don't you frame this for us? How do you, how do you, where do you, you wrote an excellent piece called Cancel Culture uh, Comes to Banking, which I stole from my intro. <laughs> what was the thesis of your piece? Well, this is an issue that's been building for a while now, Bill. It actually goes back to the Obama administration and, and, and something they had, which is called Operation Choke Point, where the government leaned on banks um, using this fuzzy idea of reputational risk to force them essentially to take away financial services to industries they don't like, like payday loans in particular, and um, basically tried to kill the industry through the regulatory state. Um, and what we've seen in recent years then is this has accelerated um, into a cancel culture comes to banking. And um, uh, various people have lost their uh, bank accounts because they, as you said, were perceived as hate groups. And this really came to a head this fall um, when Donald Trump Jr had to cancel a speech to a group in uh, Missouri because uh, the bank that provided the payment services cut them off and said, we're not going to provide banking services uh, so that you can collect payments so that people could come see Donald Trump Jr. Um, speak. And what really concerns me about it, Bill, is the way in which not just do you need a bank account to live, right, to be able to, to, be able to pay bills, to be able to get a mortgage, to be uh, anything else, but more and more, we're seeing that this has become a leverage point, just like social media, but even more so because the entanglement with the regulatory state. This has become a, uh, a leverage point to control political speech, and that's what we saw in Canada. So, Paul, if you've worked on this issue in all your various roles. I mean, one of the things that I'd be curious about your view is we had Janine Yunus on yesterday, and she's suing on behalf of some interesting plaintiffs, good guys, good people. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services, because they were encouraging Twitter to throw people off of Twitter, and they did. Twitter did. Now, the thing when we get into this about it was a we 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 work or something that cut off uh, the Donald Trump Jr. I don't remember what anyway. The name was group. Is this companies acting on their own, or are they being nudged by uh, by regulators? I think it's probably a combination, um, and. I think we we see in in many in in many instances where there's uh, sort of a two pronged approach, where there's private pressure and there's also regulatory pressure, and and the two go together. Um, and sometimes it'll be former formal uh, rulemaking, like you can look at some of the guidance that's coming out of some of the state financial regulators. Um, that would encourage banks to take these types of actions with particular institutions. 
Um, but there could be a lot of informal uh, behind the scenes pressure when companies go in to meet with, uh, with regulators. It's, it's, uh, I think people don't know exactly what they're being told there. Um, and most companies want to try to maintain good relationships with their primary regulators. And those um, are often in, in uh, large, large uh, uh, blue states. So, um, and then there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, cultural uh, pressure. It could come from uh, asset managers, could come from um, HR departments, could come from all sorts of, uh, of groups that are um, uh, fairly effective and well-organized. John Allison, our, our mutual friend, calls yeah. it regulation by raised eyebrow. <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, and, and, and in banking, the, the leverage point they've used, which is very nefarious, is this idea of reputational risk, which is completely subjective to the regulator. And so they're using it now. If you may recall, uh, Biden's first nominee to the Office of Control of the Currency said that her goal was to bankrupt the fossil fuels industry, uh, which would just be done by regulatory pressure. But... What they use here is this uh, idea yes. of Sarah, Bl Sarah Bloom Raskin. No, not Raskin. Um, the the communist from uh, Cornell, uh, oh, right. uh, yeah. if you recall. Uh, but and, and we saw this literally the day after my column appeared in Newsweek. Uh, Bill Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, had a, a contact uh, from his bank, and you can find the recording. It's a it's a it's a chilling recording. There's a uh, of a conversation between Lindell's controller and this bank officer telling them that they're basically going to get rid of all Lindell's bank accounts for him, for the company, and for his nonprofits um, because of reputational risk. Uh, and, uh, um, and, and that's as vague as it gets, right, which is basically we don't want to deal with you because you're controversial um, and tied to Donald Trump. Donald Trump himself lost his bank account. I don't know if most people know that, but mm -hmm. his personal bank canceled his bank account on January 7th. Uh, last year, I, he was able to find another bank account. And where this becomes a problem, Bill, is Donald Trump Jr., Donald Trump, Mike Lindell, these guys have microphones where, you know, these problems get corrected. Somebody else will take them. But what about just the ordinary person uh, who doesn't have access uh, to, to these resources and is finding that they can't get a bank account, they can't get a credit card, basically because they've been put on one of these mysterious lists, uh, uh, that uh, basically they're just not worth the trouble because of this, quote, reputational risk. And I, th I think one current example where you see this happening sort of in real time is with the SEC's proposed rulemaking around ESG disclosure. That's not targeting specific individuals. That's targeting whole industries or groups of industries that are considered to, um, to be problematic for environmental reasons. And you can see these two things working together. In fact, you just wrote a phenomenal comment um, <laughs> that I think I'll, I'll let you talk about that really um, ties this together. But, but on the one hand, you have asset managers pressuring companies saying, you need to change your business model because we think regulatory mandates are coming. On the other hand, you have the regulators saying, hey, we're going to propose some fairly radical mandates. Um, these things work together. Uh, and are designed, I think, to force companies to uh, change their behavior. Um, and you, you even cited some, some comments from the asset managers essentially saying, we need this rulemaking so that we can pressure companies. Right. Well, yeah, they commented, the BlackRock weighed in saying, we want, we want this because we want the leverage. 
I, but I think what you've written, or you want both one or both of you written that, that you know the regulatory regime, is, the laws, the rules are very murky and they're very discretionary. And there's no black and white tests about do this and you're okay, and you don't do this, you're not okay. Um, and what's happening is the activist ESG, which is for everybody who doesn't know, environmental, social, and governance, which really gets at the heart of what you need to think about with, with what they're trying to do with con uh, companies. And the E piece is the climate change piece. And the SEC's got this proposal out that they're going to have all this climate policy or climate change disclosure that they're requiring. And it's a way to get at the climate change agenda without being, since they can't pass legislation, they're going to do it through the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is a, an entirely upside down world as far as I'm concerned. Well, here's the thing, Bill, is that those of us who are basically on the free market side have for a long time thought about the world. I think all three of us are right here. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Especially no, financial more. services. More, right? yeah. <laughs> but, but we thought about the world in binary terms. You've got public and you've got private. And we thought, we've been concerned about public pressure, right? Laws, formal regulations, that sort of thing. We basically said private activity is private activity. But what we're seeing now is in the regulatory state, that is much more of a gray area. Um, and, and financial services is especially the case because it's so murky, because so much of it is behind closed doors and the like. And I think what we're seeing is we need to have more, my view is we need to have a more nuanced way of thinking about this, which is banking is pretty close to a public utility. And this is the thing with banking is you've got this very murky process. It's very political. It's done through supervision, for example, which is very rare in this world. Um, and the big thing with banking is there are huge barriers to entry. Uh, and in order to enter the industry, basically, you've got to play by these same regulatory rules. So it may be that when you're talking about should somebody have to bake a, a wedding cake for a same-sex marriage, that is awfully private, right? A private activity, which is to say anybody else can start a bakery. It's not like, well, you don't like our rules, start a bank, <laughs> right? Because you have to be a bank in order to get access to the payment system. Um, you have to, uh, um, so you can't just start a bank without government permission. And so at what point are we really closer to thinking of this as being more like a public utility, more like something we want to think about through terms of, of a lens of government activity? And Janine Yunus, who you mentioned, who of course was my lawyer for my lawsuit uh, uh, as well, that's what they're pressing on then in their suit, right? Which is when the government is behind the scenes leaning on private actors um, and has the ability to threaten them, to bring actions against them, you know, to, to raise costs on them. Is it really private activity at that point or is it something we need to be thinking about as being really this entanglement of public and private that maybe needs some different ways of thinking about it than how we've thought about it in the past? Well, the, the thing that strikes me is that this is not the banking system. I, I started out as a baby banker in the 70s, and I think there were like 15 or 16,000 commercial banks in the country. And that's been shrinking every year ever since. Right. And I thought, what do we have now, Three, four 4,000? But even then, almost all the assets are held by the top 10 banks. Right. And because of uh, a lot of what happened with Dodd-Frank in 2008, when did that pass? 2008, 2009? 2009, 10, yeah. We've seen, I think, as you pointed out, we've seen 44 new banks right. in, in 12 years. And it used to be banks would pop up all the time. They were free market uh, 
people say, gee, we need to start a bank to bank this kind of industry or this kind of customer. We're not seeing that. And so the regulators have got, a, uh, got their arms around a very finite group of banks and the interdependency, you can't really, you can't tell them apart. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that's why it's particularly concerning that we, we're in this moment where there is a lot of innovation in financial services, but there's been a push to um, get all of that innovation into the banking sector. So, for example, we have this rise of stable coins, which could disrupt payments. Key focus of the presidential working group, <laughs> make these things all banks. Um, uh, rulemaking uh, just out of the CFPB last week um, said we're going to start supervising fintechs like banks. Um, so there's this alignment between the incumbents and the regulators to kill the challengers that is antithetical to the political message that we're hearing. We're hearing a message that's about reducing market concentration, that's about empowering individuals, that's about financial inclusion, but the actions are doing exactly the opposite, which on one hand is discouraging, um, but I also think presents an opportunity for better policy. Uh, this is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm talking with Todd Zwicky and Paul Watkins, and we're about to answer a question I want to ask, or, uh, which is, uh, do, how many ordinary Americans need to worry about this uh, coercive hand of government cutting us off from our bank accounts or from credit? Well, here's the thing, uh, Bill, is it, it always starts with the Nazis, but it never ends with the Nazis, all right? Uh, which is what I mean is people say, well, surely banks don't have to provide bank accounts for Nazis, which is what we heard 15 years ago. And they said, surely colleges don't have to allow Nazis to speak on their campus. And pretty soon George Will is getting canceled, uh, right, for being politically incorrect. And so what we've seen is very rapidly this there's been this slippery slope from these very dramatic things. So all of a sudden you got guys like Mike Lindell or the Canadian truckers. Uh, and think about how this plays out. Think if we had had cancel culture in the way that the, the Trudeau brought the hammer down on the anti-vaccine mandate uh, protesters in Canada. Think about if we had that in the 60s. Martin Luther King and the Southern uh, Christian Leadership Conference, they broke the law. Their whole model was, we're going to break the law by trespassing, which is what the truckers did <laughs> in Canada. And think if the rule had been at the time, Martin Luther King can get bail, but he can't access his bank account to actually post bail, right? Which is, we're going to give you bail, but if you can't get any money, you can't post bail. And then nobody's allowed to contribute money to you to post bail. Nobody's allowed to contribute to the SCLC to further their conspiracy to break the law through trespassing or marching over the Selma Bridge or sitting at a Woolworths lunch counter. That's what they did to the Canadian truckers, is they said, you are breaking the law by trespassing, and we're going to freeze all of your assets. You may get bail, but you can't access your money. Um, and ordinary citizens who want to exercise their constitutional rights could very easily find themselves in the crosshairs, just like those ordinary people in Canada, and even the people who are well, donating well, to well, those that, That's uh, the point I wanted to make. I mean, it's not just the beneficiaries, the money, it's the donors themselves. I mean, you've got a free market for deciding what you want to support or not support. They decided they want to send some money to support the truckers, and the Canadian government uh, grabbed it. Right. Yeah, and, uh, um, and they went after the, you know, originally GoFundMe, 
and they eventually went after the replacement, uh, Give, Send, Go, I think it was, and they told them that they were going to freeze the assets that they had, and they ended up having basically having to refund it as well. So they really did choke off all of the efforts for people to want to be able to support them as well as the people are actually engaging in it simply because they said it was furthering a criminal conspiracy based on these very flimsy sort of arguments that look an awful lot like the American Civil Rights Movement uh, uh, to, to me. So, How many people do you think understand this? Well, Bill, here's what's terrifying, which is two-thirds in a, in a poll, two-thirds of Democrats approved of what Trudeau did by uh, freezing the assets of the truckers. Mm -hmm. Did they understand it? My concern is, yes, they did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they understood that this is a new tool uh, to stifle dissent uh, and to attack their criminal or attack their uh, their opponents. Um, and I think um, a lot of other people were asleep at the switch. They told me I was, you know, uh, uh, you know, was overly concerned when I've been sort of saying this is coming, this is coming. And then a lot of people saw what happened in Canada. They said, wow, Zawicki, you were right. Uh, we should, I didn't realize this was as big a threat as it is. And let's be clear, they could do that right now in the United States. They, they used an emergency authority in Canada, but they could do that right now. Maybe Paul would disagree with me, but I think the power of the regulatory state in this country, uh, they could do that right now to American citizens under very flimsy, but, uh, but you know, an unreviewable type systems like so, they did with Operation Chokepoint. So when we have uh, the Secretary of the Treasury giving speeches about how the, the Treasury needs to be concerned about environmental justice, we've got the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco writing papers on everything. Monetary policy ought to be aimed at, uh, at the green agenda. We've got candidates for the Federal Reserve who say we ought to cut off banking services to anybody involved in fossil fuels. That list can only that list grows and grows and grows. And so, the, 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 if they can't get it through the, the legislature, they're going to get it through the banks. Absolutely, every person who gets banned on Twitter because they're supposedly engaged in hate speech or disinformation. Every single one of those people are a candidate to lose their bank account, to put it simply, right? Um, I, I, in my view, uh, the way that the government regulation uh, operates. Here. Well, that speech, the, the 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 phone conversation with the bank with the banker and Michael Liddell's, I guess, chief financial officer, really was chilling. I mean, it was this very kind of, well, you know, we really we're really just not all that happy, and we sort of like you to move your business someplace else. I didn't show up at the door with guns and stuff like that. It was just kind of this nudge, but it was a very firm nudge. Yep. So what happens if I don't do it this week? Well, then we're going to do, we're going to ratchet it up. Right. And so we're going to put you on the, what do you call it? The bad boy list. Right. Yeah, uh, I think it, that's what. And then they're they basically like, that. "You could. We're going to allow you to close your bank account because if we have to close it for you, then you're going to have a lot of." Do banks circulate lists of of, of people? I think isn't there a list, a watch list for people whose banks have, accounts have been closed? Don't they share that with each other? I'm still trying to figure out what exactly that bank officer meant by this, but uh, by the bad by boy that, list. The bad boy list. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, but but there appears to be some list. And nobody's quite sure what it is, uh, but that that but but we know that there are people who've said they've lost their bank accounts and been unable to get another bank account anywhere else. So what do we do about it? 
Well, I think we, uh, we try to accelerate innovation in this space. We're at this, I think, pretty exciting historical moment um, where traditionally trust has been centralized. We've trusted an institution because they have a big name on a building, because they have a name on a stadium, because they're examined or insured by a federal agency, a state agency that you trust, but there are other methods of trust, and I think blockchain is showing that. Um, when you have uh, essentially everyone looking at the same spreadsheet, seeing um, how value has been transferred, confirming that it's been transferred accurately, you don't need a lot of those intermediaries. And this is a significant threat financially to the incumbents, um, but it also removes the need for the same type of regulatory apparatus that we've had so far. Um, and so I think there's a real opportunity here to accelerate that transition and empower the individual to act as they want. And, and I agree with, with, with Paul that the, the importance of innovation, of sort of getting around the banking system. But what we found in Canada, um, and what I think we see in this country, is um, the very fact that we can look at that, in, in my view, is, a, uh, is an opportunity for freedom, is exactly why the left is coming after it. Uh, as Paul said, they're already trying to push all this stuff, sweep all this stuff into the banking system. Uh, their system basically on their tax compliance or regulatory compliance or some other type thing. And so my concern is, you know, there will be an effort to always stay one step ahead. But my concern is, is that, that they see that as well. And so uh, one idea I've talked about, is, as I said earlier, I think it's time to recognize these aren't really just purely private businesses. You can't just start another bank. But when Brian Brooks was um, uh, the control of the currency in the Trump administration, the last regulation he issued was something called fair access to financial services um, rule. And that basically said that banks can only take into account traditional matters of financial risk um, in deciding whether to provide banking services to a company or an individual or whatever the case may be. Now, I understand that is um, an increase in government power, right? Um, and, uh, and I understand that that comes with a lot of risk of unintended consequences, but, um, but this is happening, right? A lot of people say, well, won't that, you know, what happens when the left gets power? It's like, come on, Bill, let's be serious. The left is doing this already. We've already given the examples. They're already doing this. They're not waiting around for legal authorization, <laughs> right? And so I think it's time to start thinking about the potential of something like that that would require banks well, you've got um, to get that to, through Congress. Um, well, he issued as a rulemaking okay. as the control of the currency that basically says this is proper banking practice is that you don't take into account things like people's political views in deciding whether you give them financial but let me press let me push on that. When I was a baby banker, we had something called the three C's of credit. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was four, but I only remember three. Uh, and there was credit, which was your cash flow. And then there was collateral, which is the assets you could put up to support a loan. And the third one was character. Right. And it used to be in the old days of banking, actually knew who you lent money to and you would assess their character and decide, well, that's a good, 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 good place to loan money or not. Isn't this character piece a slippery slope, though, even for objective measures of who gets credit and who doesn't? You can say... You know, um, you know, disinformation. We've got a new minister of disinformation. I heard her on right. the radio this morning, 
and she thinks everything Republicans say is disinformation. <laughs> and when the parents complain about CRT training in schools, teaching in school, they say, well, that's, you know, that's disinformation. So how do we get, how do you really make credit objective, I guess, is my, can you, can you do it that, that well, way? Well, sure. And that was, you know, as you said, character was a double-edged sword uh, back in the day, which is, yeah, character, you want to have somebody who's a good character. But what that meant in the old days often was, the bank uh, manager would approve a loan to his golfing buddy uh, or his Kiwanis club buddy, but not to, you know, a minority or a woman or whatever the case may be. Right. And so the way we address that was through credit scoring, objective measures of financial risk okay. uh, was basically what came out of ECOA was that you should look at objective measures of financial risk, not whether, you know, somebody's, you know, whether somebody's got a good handicap and you like to play with, you know, play around the golf with them. And so, uh, and that was a huge impact on democratizing credit and rationalizing it and, and promoting financial exclusion. Um, and, uh, um, and so while obviously character matters, um, we need to not turn it into something where it's just the arbitrary. I agree. I'm just thinking of, about different managers. ways you could yeah. drive, drive loopholes into it. Right. But it seems promising, though, that we, if we've got this completely ossified system of traditional banking, to look at the the digital world. I mean, how do you, how do you, how would that, what would that look like? I mean, how do you set something up that's free from uh, the the regulatory uh, regime? Yeah, so I, I think you've you've hit on the key question, which is how do you how do you regulate this? And I think we've we've already discussed that there's um, sort of a progressive incumbent alliance to regulate everything like a bank. So the alternative has to be regulate things at the state level um, as much as possible. We already have state chartered banks; they're federally supervised by either the FDIC or the Federal Reserve in most cases, with some exceptions. Um, but there are new charters. Um, there's one in Wyoming um, called a Special Purpose Depository Institution, um, not supervised at the federal level. There are also other types of state licenses, um, such as money transmission, um, that are not supervised at the federal level. Um, and so these types of license structures, particularly if states were to act in concert and say we want to create some sort of zone of innovation where we will accelerate innovation for our um, for our citizens, you just take the red states um, uh, that have, uh, um, that you, you just take even very red states. Uh, you get 20 states together, you've got a market of 100 million people. That's plenty large enough um, to invest in. There could be a lot of innovation that would be great for consumers and would indirectly also solve this problem. So, that wouldn't so, be the, so the reason you yeah. want to aggregate the states is you want a big enough market to be able to get to scale. Yeah, exactly. I think if you just have, yeah. I mean, maybe you could do this in 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 a, a large state like Texas or something like that. But um, yeah, you, you couldn't you couldn't do it in in one of the smaller states. But you get a group of states together. You have a, a significant payments network. You have a significant banking network, and that's sort of a bulwark that you can use uh, for economic growth. And then also, incidentally, for this. Well, sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a federalist, it's a federalism solution to this, where you got to experiment in different states, and of course the blue states won't experiment, and they won't let these innovations happen. Florida will, Texas probably will, Tennessee probably will. All of a sudden, they've got thriving alternative financial services organizations. It's going to put a lot of pressure on the other states to uh, to do something like that. 
That's exactly right. And I think it addresses what is one of the weaknesses of Todd's uh, solution, which is if, if we can only do this administratively at the federal level, then it gets flipped every time power changes. Um, so there's, I, I know I'm, I'm not saying anything right. that's new to you, I right. recognize, but um, so, so there has to be something else that's a little bit more durable and a little bit more permanent so that people can make investments and kind of build their, their life with a little bit more certainty. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree, right, which is we need to promote, uh, promote this um, uh, as well um, and try to keep it out of the regulatory system. And this is what's so dangerous about this. This is, and I want to emphasize something Paul mentioned earlier, the problem here is that you have the combination of progressive regulators, woke sort of progressive leftists, um, activists, right, leaning on everybody else, and then you have the, the big banks, Right. The big banks and the incumbent banks want to stifle stifle innovation. They want to prevent entry. And a good example was about 10 years ago, Walmart wanted to get a banking charter, um, which would have been an amazing thing. Walmart, every Walmart ended up not getting a banking charter. Why? Because the incumbent banks stifled them. They stomped on them. They kept them from getting it. But it turns out Walmart has been able to provide some financial services, money transfers, other sorts of things. And everywhere Walmart has entered, they've totally transformed those industries, such as money transfers, where the entry of Walmart dramatically reduced what Western Union, for example, can charge for uh, as a service. But fee. Walmart did not get it done. They, they were not able to get a bank account to offer checking deposit, you know, checking and that accounts. Didn't happen. Right. So they were able to offer sort of money transmitting and other non-bank well, services. Much, but yeah, it doesn't do much, but it illustrates the potential. I mean, well, fast for forward, you got Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan trashing or Chase. Is it J.P. Morgan Chase? Now I forget. The, yeah, J.P. Morgan yeah. Chase. Right. Um, trashes uh, cryptocurrency like every time you hear him speak. <laughs> yeah. No, that's you right. think he's talking his book? <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's. Uh, and I think the bank strategy has been let's try to slow down innovation until we can catch up, and then also push. And then it, it won't be it. innovation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And you know, my my favorite example. I like Todd's example. My favorite example is if you look at the notes from a meeting that the largest banks in the country had with Janet Yellen on December eighth of last year. December eighth of last last year. Largest banks, you know, Secretary of Treasury, you don't get to talk to the Secretary of Treasury very often, right? So you're, maybe you have one point that you Jen want and to I get have across. Dinner regularly. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. right. So Treasury, it's clear from the notes, they want to talk about Build Back Better and their legislative priority. There is only one issue that is brought up besides that. That is the regulation of stable coins. <laughs> the number one economic issue for the largest it, banks in the country. Explain for the un, uninitiated, what's a stable coin? The stable coin is a cryptocurrency that's designed to hold a stable value. Right. It enables, it can enable very efficient transactions that would eliminate the need for uh, intermediaries that currently charge a lot of fees. Where are the books kept for that? I mean, if you've got, the, I mean, you've got a you've got a a, a, a ledger that that monitor or keeps track of how much is there, so you can't create new new uh, new currency. Is that the way this works? So yeah, it depends a lot on the particular cryptocurrency. Um, so for some stable coins, they have um, if it's a stable coin that's backed by dollars, if it's designed to uh, mimic the dollars, then there are dollars held in an account. 
um, and that's audited often by a third party. There are other stable coins that have been accused of basically making this up. So there's a wide. Uh, well, then we've got the trust certainty. factor. Yep. I mean, exactly. the trust factor is a big deal. I remember I was at Continental Bank when I started my career, and it was really charming because on the, on the foot of LaSalle Street, right in front of the Board of Trade, you had the Federal Reserve Bank on this side of the street and had these pillars and edifice and stuff. This was the Federal Reserve Bank. Right across the street, you had Continental Bank with the same pillars, yeah. the same edifice, the same marble. I guess they had some negotiation where one was Corinthian and one was Ionic or something like that. <laughs> they weren't exactly this. But the whole point was the bank was projecting uh, it was going to be there forever. How do we create trust with our money? Well, if you take Bitcoin, for example, um, the trust is created by everyone being able to see the ledger and see that the trans see what transactions have occurred and see that they've occurred according to the agreed upon process, which in Bitcoin is something called proof of work. And this is all open architecture. We can all see it. Yes, you can. Uh, we don't have a computer in front of us uh, right now, but you could look up, uh, you know, the hundred address the 100 uh, Bitcoin addresses with the largest holdings in Bitcoin and you can see that and you can click on an address and you can see money going in and out you don't necessarily know who's behind that and there might be another address behind it and so forth um, but you can see these transactions and uh, transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain um, are verified according to something called proof of work and um, and it's, uh, it's very difficult to trick um, because it would require somebody essentially having 51% of the validation power on the Bitcoin network, which is not feasible to achieve. And I think stable coins, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but stable coins is the potential existential threat to the incumbent banking system. Because, because the problem with Bitcoin and some of these other currencies is that they, you know, one of the key aspects of money is that they hold their value, right? Even in an inflationary environment, they have some stable value to some extent. The problem with Bitcoin, for example, is that it fluctuates so much that people don't really want to hold it as a, a currency if they need to convert it into liquid funds, number one. And then number two, you still have to convert it into dollars to be able to buy a gallon of milk. And I think the logic of stable coin is that it essentially becomes like a dollar. It's a stable value so that you can switch out of more speculative, unstable but assets. But like you've got to buy dollars with it in order to buy... Uh, buy no. Eventually, you, you so, can, it, it'll, so it, the idea is eventually yeah. stable... Well, let's say I go into Safeway to buy, you know, buy stuff. Can I, I can't pay for it now with a stable coin. I, I don't know if you can. It's Safeway. You, currently, you certainly... Sure. Uh, there, there are places where you can pay for things with Bitcoin. There are places where you can use other... But eventually, stable coins are the most plausible thing to become more mainstream yes. as opposed to Stateway is never going to take Bitcoin because the value fluctuates too much, but they might actually take a stable coin, might evolve as a. Um, well, as a I, well I don't know. Currency. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that Safeway will never take Bitcoin, I think. I think they might. Well, um, they might. The yeah. thing, I mean, that's the thing about the new. You just don't know. Right. Yeah. To you. But I have a friend who's a, who's a gold bug. I mean, serious. He thinks everything ought to be backed by gold. I think most people realize that the dollar is a fiat currency. It's really not backed by anything. Mm -hmm. And it's backed by, quote, trust. And he sent me a book about fiat currencies back all the way through the Egyptians. And essentially, when 
governments took their money and they took it away from gold or being backed by other sorts of uh, hard assets or you know some people something that thought would hold its value eventually the currency collapsed and so I'm thinking about the micro issue we're talking about here is our personal financial security. I'm also really worried about the dollar yeah. and our $30 trillion of debt and, and rising rapidly, causing us to lose our status of the world reserve currency. Right. We could see, I don't know, we can envision what happens. Would the stable coin then be a, be a haven we could, uh, we could look to? So I think there are a couple of different approaches. That was there. about I, nine questions, I think. Yeah, but so, I, I, it's a it's something I'm. Yeah. I'm, I, so really, this was, uh, I think this this was, the, the, those were probably the most legitimate of the concerns expressed in the last administration for why they did not get behind innovation in the way that they should have. That was a major major missed opportunity because in the, the Trump the, administration. People losing faith in the dollar. And when you listen to the president talk about it, he was he was worried about the security hmm. of the dollar. However, um, something like a stable coin, if, if the U.S. had moved quickly in that moment and said, yes, we're going to provide clarity, you can launch stable coins, you can back them with the dollar here, you know, you have to be honest. If you're dishonest, we'll sue you and a whole bunch of people will sue you, so don't be dishonest. Uh, if we'd done something like that, I think that would have probably increased the demand for dollars because you would have had this very easy to use global uh, currency that was backed by dollars. So I think that would have been a huge positive. Um, now, something like Bitcoin that's not tied to the dollar, you know, could that long term be a threat? Maybe. But, uh, you know, it's better to incorporate that. If, if we're the country that incorporates that system into our financial infrastructure first, that's only going to be a win. If we wait, um, we're going to be worse off than if we move more quickly. Well, I said this is a vast topic. It is because I'm also thinking, also wondering about uh, central bank digital currency. Oh, Okay. Yeah, that, this is one. I, <laughs> so, me. yeah. So We've got 80 was, countries now. I think Zimbabwe's got theirs going. And so I was aware of, uh, you know, cancel culture and banking and leaning on the banking system. I was, I have only recently had my eyes awakened to the danger of central bank digital currency. Um, and this is a big deal. I mean, it's and it's a big deal first because I don't like the reasons why they want it, which is it basically comes down to it'll be easier to manipulate the money supply, right? Uh, it'll be easier to do these crazy negative interest rate type things we've seen in other places because otherwise people just hoard dollars. Um, and so it really opens up a vast range for... Who wants to give a quick primer on D, uh, CBDG? Uh, this would basically be the the the... The, go the government would basically just Federal Reserve. Use, yeah, Federal Reserve. Why don't you explain it, Paul? You could probably explain what CBDG, what it is. Yeah, so it's a digital currency like the cryptocurrencies that you're familiar with that are issued by the central bank. Um, so you have a liability with the central bank. So it's both a digital currency and it's um, likely circumvents the existing banking system. Yeah, yeah so, so what happens to J.P. Morgan Chase if, if you're banking with the Federal Reserve? Uh, I think that's one reason why there's some alignment here between the big banks. Yeah, there's just uh, some digital they, they don't love that. debits and credits yeah. right, that don't ever really get converted into pure dollars. So you can't take money out of the bank and hold it at your house or carry it around in your wallet. Right. Right. That doesn't exist anymore. It's just digital debits and credits. And here's what's so dangerous about it, Bill, is um, I just became aware of this. What, what opened my eyes to it was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast with Majid um, Nawaz. And he was 
talking about. The, the other thing they can do with it is they can program it yeah. for anything they want to program it for. They could say, you've exceeded your allotment of hamburgers this month. You've exceeded your use of, of gasoline, and that's bad for the environment. They could say, um, you can't buy a plane ticket to go to a certain city because there's a, uh, uh, there's a conference going on that weekend that we think you want to attend that's going to promote disinformation about this, that, or the other. That is all plausible with, uh, what, because now they are tracking every dollar that goes into your account and out of your account through these, uh, through these processes. And that is very scary. So we end, up with, we end up with China's, China's social credit system. It is the pretty much the final step toward China's social credit system, potentially. You Does can China spend. have that yet? I know they're working on a digital currency. Yeah, look, I don't have, there are people that say China's doing that and China says it's not. I'm not in a position. <laughs> Nobody knows what China's right. really I, you know, doing. <laughs> you all might have a little more Yeah, insight. I'm just like anyone else looking at the credibility of the two speakers and deciding okay. who, you, who you want to believe. Um, but it, this is, I think, I agree with Todd that this is a very significant threat. And it's also concerning that this is clearly the direction that the current administration wants to go. If you look at the executive order that they did on digital assets, it requested approximately, I can't remember the exact number, but it's 19 or 20 reports from different agencies. About a dozen of those reports are about how to regulate private cryptocurrencies more. About half a dozen are about how to promote a central bank digital currency. And then one report from the Department of Commerce is about how maybe this innovation could do something positive. And remember, this is what they did with Operation Choke Point, which is they said, I've mentioned payday lenders, but they also said we're going to go after bank accounts for firearms dealers. We're going to go after bank accounts for people who uh, um, sell certain materials. Pornography hate material may have been on that list, right? We're going to go after people who um, sell ammunition, people who sell fireworks, right? All these sorts of things. They already had a hit list of uh, companies. It's a lot easier with central bank digital currency to just say no more, you know, you can't spend money on firearms. Right? We're not taking away your Second Amendment rights. We're just telling you still have a right to buy guns. You just can't get access to uh, the funds to buy a gun, for example. Right? So, so you all were at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, not you were on one of the advisory committees. Is that Basically, right? And you yeah, were right. you worked there for a while. This. I did. Yes. So what was it like to be inside an Elizabeth Warren creation? <laughs> <laughs> well, they designed it to have a lot of discretion. So <laughs> with on, no oversight on, on one so, hand, so, but, but where I'm going with this though, yeah. is what, how's it changed since you all left and it's now in the hands of the, of the Bidenites. You know, what's been really discouraging to me. And I, look, I knew, uh, I was going to disagree with this administration on a lot of things, but I was actually encouraged when one of their first, one of their primary talking points was reducing market concentration. And I may disagree with the emphasis they put on it. I may uh, think that other areas should be emphasized. Um, but that is something that I think is really important that we should all share. We want to have a competitive marketplace where anybody can start a company and build it up right. and compete with the big guys. We all want that. And maybe we need a little bit more antitrust. What has been discouraging to me is to see how the effect of their regulatory strategy has been to lock in the incumbents. Mm and to impose the same regulatory burdens on new entrants as the incumbents who have different products. Uh, you know, we haven't regulated fintechs like banks for a decade, 
and I don't think there's been a problem with that. So there's no reason to start doing it now, except that you allow the incumbents to keep their lower cost of capital because they're a bank, because they have deposits, and also impose their regulatory costs on their competitors, um, which is a, a, net, uh, a net loss for the consumer and for the American public. Uh, and so I've been very discouraged to see them go that direction. Yeah, I, this has been, they, they have unleashed the full power of the administrative state in all of its lawlessness um, is what's going on right now with the CFPB under this new director. I'll give you an example, which is about a month or so ago, the director, Rohit Chopra, announced under current law, we have the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which specifically prohibits um, uh, um, you know, discrimination in lending uh, services. Right? Um, they announced that they're going to use UDAP, the Unfair, Deceptive, and Abusive Practices, um, to go after anything that they perceive uh, as uh, discrimination. Um, and here's what's important about it, Bill, is the way they're gonna do it is they're gonna use supervision, the supervisory power. No rulemaking that somebody could offer notice and comment on into whether or not it was supported. Not even an enforcement action where people could raise legal objections. The reason they do it through supervision is it's re it's really hard to figure out how to even challenge a supervisor. This, this is John decision. Allison's raised eyebrow. This is John Allison's raised eyebrow, right? And so basically what you do is you can go in there and basically, you know, for example, you know, really go. So one of the dreams of the Biden administration was, and I wrote an article for Regulation Magazine on this, was to retool the consumer uh, uh, credit bureaus, right, and the consumer credit rating system because on average, minorities have a lower credit score than, uh, than whites, which, of course, in the woke world means it's obviously discrimination. Though, and so yeah, they were going to yeah, create yeah. a federal monopoly credit bureau system that would, be designed, that would basically fix that, right? That would have been too expensive, too difficult. But now this allows them to do it. They just go in and they say, re-engineer your algorithm so that it comes out correctly. Otherwise, we're going to uh, say that you're violating um, uh, UDAP because of acting in this way. And just think about the range that that, uh, that gives them. And they do it through supervision because that's the, the, the least transparent um, and least rule of, uh, rule, of bar, rule of law bound aspects of the regulatory process. And that's in place right now. They announced it about a month ago. Right? Okay. So, so and, and with this agency, there's no oversight. We don't, the Congress doesn't even get to fund it. Right. Um, Gee. <laughs> and that's why they, that's just why it is Elizabeth Warren's dream. It's the yeah. ultimate dream of an unaccountable bureaucracy um, that uh, um, can just run amok on the economy and impose progressive um, policies. What's interesting to me is if you look back at the initial papers that she was writing when she was advocating for this, she says we need this new consumer-focused organization because the prudential regulators care too much about the financial success of these banks. And so there's too much alignment. We need a separate institution that can sue these institutions without worrying about their financial success. But what's happened is they've become another regulatory body that protects the incumbents, just like the prudential regulators did. And so it's completely antithetical to the purpose for which this, or this agency was set up, which was supposed to be the singular independent advocate for consumers. Well, they're an advocate, but an advocate for only certain certain subsets of consumers. 
would that be? They, one thing they do, Bill, is it's very clear and unfortunate about, about the, the, the CFPB is it's been under democratic rule, at least. Is the left has come to see the consumer finance systems, a system for redistribution um, and wealth transfer without having to pass a law and without having the government do it. They basically commandeer the private sector um, to redistribute the way that, uh, that, that, that they want even though over the long run it ends up hurting the people that they intend to help. So when the regular ordinary person that doesn't study this starts, his, eye, his or her eyes glaze over when we talk about financial regulation, they shouldn't. We really got to pay attention. So my takeaway from this, that I'd like you guys to sum up because we're about out of time, is central bank digital currencies, we've got to fight tooth and nail. Um, if we can, we want to get some better regulation in place to get a, a level playing field for allocation of credit, which would also address this, uh, would this also address this consumer financial protection uh, ruling on, uh, on, 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 the, on the credit scoring that you were just talking about? I'd have to think about that, but it might. It might. Yeah. But we ought to be thinking about stablecoin as a potential solution, and we ought to be encouraging states to innovate, to pioneer a federalist solution that would create uh, the innovation and change we want and hope that if we nurture these in the red states that because they're going to provide better, chap better, faster, cheaper services, it'll, it'll explode into something good. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Just jumping off on, the, on that last point, I think the focus, and it's been a little bit concerning uh, to me to see the debate in, in Congress uh, not really go this, this direction, but the status quo right now is to regulate cryptocurrency and fintech at the state level. We should keep it there, coordinate the regulation at the state level, um, and consider some of the rules that Todd's talking about to talk force neutrality, but structurally provide um, the opportunity for solutions to develop uh, because look, a politicized financial system doesn't serve consumers and we should move beyond a politicized uh, financial system. And uh, the left is giving that opportunity right now by perverting the purpose of the regulators and these institutions. Let's build better institutions that actually work for the folks that they're supposed to serve. And I think that there's a, a lesson in there which is conservatives need to be aware that on this and so many other things, the progressives are playing the long game, right? And when they are, they, they, they figure out how to message these things, which is we just want to prevent criminal activity. We just want to, you know, it's just reasonable application of anti-terrorism laws and that sort of thing. But they use that as the camel nose under the tent, right? And so conservatives need to be thinking, yes, there may be some reasonable things here. Obviously, there's a concern of, you know, cryptocurrency and terrorism, for example, right? Um, but we need to be careful in terms of addressing that concern or money laundering or whatever the case be, addressing that concern, that we keep the fences and the walls high around that so it doesn't end up impacting the rest of us. Um, and sometimes um, uh, uh, sometimes we're not foresighted enough about how, how far down the line the left is uh, thinking about these sorts of things and where they want to go with it. Well, they've been at it for 100 years. Of course, they got a long plan. This has been the Bill Walton Show. I'm, I'm here with Todd Zwicky and uh, Paul Watkins, and I think we've had an extremely uh, 
revealing conversation about our money. And uh, I hope you all still have your mattresses because we may need them. <laughs> <laughs> no, not seriously, but I do think we all had to bone up on our, our thinking about stablecoin, Bitcoin as a, as a, as a freedom-oriented solution to this. So anyway, guys, thanks for being here. We'll get you back and we'll, we'll continue this conversation. I'm sure these issues will continue to loom. So anyway, thanks for joining and uh, I hope this was helpful. As always, stay tuned for uh, what's true, what's right, and what's next. Yeah, I am very worried about our money, though. I'm really worried, you know, both macro and micro. I read a fascinating thing I'm going to bring up here, but I read a fascinating thing a couple of weeks ago. Of I think that the, that the, that the, that the cockiness uh, in the faith in the dollar may be misplaced. Um, I agree. And, you know, I read this fascinating thing they were talking about. Well, there were two things I read. Did you see the article in the Wall Street Journal about the, the Russian central banker? Um, this was about two or three weeks ago. She is brilliant. I mean, it's like, you know, Russia have the advantage that that is a meritocracy uh, in some sense, right? Which is, you know, Putin is not woke and Putin is not engaging in affirmative action, right? Like in terms of who he's putting in charge of financial systems, right? And this woman who's running the Russian bank, this Russian central banker is brilliant. And they've been preparing for this since 2014 or whenever they invaded uh, Georgia, right? Or what that last thing that they did in, in Russia. <clears throat> they knew that eventually they're going to invade Ukraine and they knew that the West was going to bring the hammer down on financial uh, um, uh, you know, sanctions. And so they've been planning for this. Right. right. It's not like we caught them off guard. And I don't know if you saw the price, the ruble went like this and then went like it's this. It's right back up. It went right back up because yeah. they were planning ahead for this while we were asleep at the switch. And the second thing is, is I read at the same time, discussion of a possibility of China, Russia, and Iran. Currency block. Currency block with a, um, a commodity backed currency, right? And if you can hold a, a, a global currency that's backed by oil, for example, mm -hmm. rather than the full faith and credit of the United States government, given now with inflation and everything else, that's an easy thing to see, like you're saying. That can unravel like that. Yeah, well, I've right. been talking about this. I think we're really playing with fire with this Ukraine thing. And, and the ultimate victim is going to be our dollar status as the world's reserve currency. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.